Comrades and friends, welcome to another episode of the Highlands Bunker podcast. Uh, before I introduce our guest this week, I wanted to hearken back to episode 71 of the podcast called The Great Uprising. We hosted Professor Peter B. Levy of York University in Pennsylvania and Professor Yasser Payne of the University of Delaware to discuss Levy's book on the three specific civil rights uprisings in the 1960s. One of the heroes of the book is Gloria Richardson. Richardson was a movement leader in Cambridge on Maryland's Eastern Shore. Uh, and this uh, is from Levy's book, uh, The Great Uprising. By the summer of 1962, the freedom movement in Cambridge had distinguished itself from those budding up across the country in several ways. First, it was led by Gloria Richardson, a remarkable black middle-aged single mother of two, a graduate of Howard University in the 1940s, and the granddaughter of Merdier St. Clair. While Richardson did not initiate the movement in Cambridge, by her own admission, she was drawn into it by her daughters who participated in some early sit-ins. She came to symbolize its militancy. She faced threats to her life, went to jail, as did her mother and daughter, and endured sexist barbs of civil rights leaders who were unaccustomed to playing second fiddle to women in general, not to mention women in the civil rights movement. Roy Innes of Coeur, for example, described her as a, quote, castrator. Though often forgotten today, Richardson was prominent enough at the time to be one of the handful of women to be formally recognized at the March on Washington alongside Rosa Parks. Many SNCC activists later recalled Richardson as a seminal person in their development. For instance, SNCC veterans Judy Richardson and Jean Riley describe Richardson as simply phenomenal. Quote, I know what always stood out for me, Judy Richardson, no relation recollected. Gloria was strong. She was just unbending. Similarly, Wiley remembered how Richardson ignited, in, <clears throat> ignited the energy in the black community and how much the people, quote, adored Gloria. She was phenomenal. Second, under, Richard's leader, under Richardson's leadership, the Cambridge Nonviolent Action Committee, CNAC, the local affiliate of SNCC, dedicated itself to building a movement from the grassroots up one which catered, as Richardson put it, to the churched and the unchurched, and which focused on the primary concerns of the poor and working class blacks, namely jobs, housing, better recreation. Finally, Richardson and the local movement quickly gained a reputation for their fearless and unwillingness to accommodate white moderates, including a readiness to defend themselves with guns if necessary. Or as Victoria Jackson Stanley recalled, her father kept, quote, a pistol in his boot, a knife in his pocket, a shotgun in the trunk, a rifle in the front seat, and a handgun in his pocket, unquote, to protect his family and himself because at that time, quote, you just weren't sure who would approach you to try to hurt you. This does not mean that Richardson promoted violence. On the contrary, she helped orchestrate some of the finest examples of nonviolent direct action protest in the history of the civil rights movement. But she did not believe that this committed black people to jettisoning their rights to protect themselves, their families, and their community, a view which historians have recently revealed, prevailed even, if not always openly, through much of the movement. Uh, last Thursday, uh, Gloria Richardson Dandridge uh, passed away in New York City at the age of 99. Uh, if there's any context uh, for the phrase rest in power, I think that's, that's it. So rest in power, Gloria Richardson.
Uh, today on the Highlands Bunker Podcast, we present the fourth installment of our Delaware Justice Team series. This is a series of shows produced in partnership with the ACLU of Delaware and the Delaware Call. Super producer Carl is here and making his second podcast appearance on the bunker, but first time in the bunker studio, the executive director of the ACLU of Delaware, Mike Rickner. Mike. I'm super happy to be here in the bunker. Uh, it, it's it's nicer. It's very nicely decorated. It's nice here. Yeah, everybody has sort of a different uh, different feel for it. The, the best reaction uh, was uh, Wilmington Council person Sinead Darby when she came in. Um, she looked around and she was like, "I feel like I'm uh, part of a revolution." Yeah, and I was like, yeah. "Well, good. I'm glad. That's the that's the idea." Um, before we get to the ACLU priorities for the next General Assembly session, um, I wanted to take some time to review sort of where we are relative to civil rights in the state and to sort of highlight what we did in the series so far. Um, So the first one uh, was Clean Slate and Smart Justice with Hanif uh, and and John. And so the, the, the past session brought us, you know, some changes to use of force uh, and also a change to the way I guess the AG is going to be investigating these things and and actually I didn't I didn't get the the details on that so what can you just give me the details on that part of it like what is that division of the AG's office doing differently after this law has been passed yeah so it, it essentially it's allowing for um, well one it's correcting uh, state law so that it's in line with what uh, federal law says essentially um, for you know decades around use of force cases the federal standard has been you have to reasonably believe that you are in danger and that that allows you to use force uh, then it moves the investigations into um, essentially a um, a department within the attorney general's office it also allows them I believe to investigate, non-lethal uh, use of force cases, which I think is also important because, um, you know, we want anytime there's uh, an alleged wrongful use of force for that to be uh, part of, uh, to be to be investigated and be fully vetted. I see. So the two go hand in hand. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Oh. They, they were seen as very much companion bills. That makes sense. Yeah, my, my, my quibble, not even a quibble, it's a full-blown critique of it, is that that use of force standard, while now it's it seems better, it doesn't just apply to the police. So it applies to uh, some uh, a spouse who's being abu- abused domestically or potentially raped, um, somebody breaks into your house, uh, anything where you would defend yourself. And again, I understand you know the cops never be want, never want to be singled out for responsibility. They love taking the responsibility and using it, but they don't want to you know be actually to be held accountable for anything. So I was a little bit disappointed in that bit of it. But at least I understand the um, the investigatory part of it too, because I did before. Yeah, and I and I do think so. Uh, I do think it's an important change. Um, I'll give a different critique of it, though. Uh, my critique of it is that it doesn't go nearly far enough as what we need for uh, police reform here in the state. I mean, if you think about it, it really brings Delaware state law into line with the vast majority of state laws out there on the books as it relates to use of force. And you have to look no further than a lot of the other states that have had issues with policing to know that the national standard on use of force is not all that great anyway. So it just moves Delaware you know, a little bit further along on an already kind of bad system. I think our other critique, um, you know, the, the other major reform beyond use of force that was passed was also body-worn cameras and mandating those sta- statewide. But the one that wasn't passed was the 
amendments of uh, Leobor, the Law Enforcement Officers Bill of Rights. And with that bill, SB 149, you're talking about allowing for misconduct records to be public record. You're allowing for community-led oversight boards. So if you're changing use of force and, and how that is looked at, um, you're only really half addressing the issue or those reforms are going to be undermined if it's still completely shrouded in secrecy as what Delaware law still allows. Yeah, and I definitely want to get to what the priorities of the next session were going to be because I think that's going to be a huge, huge one. Um, before we do that, let's just hit the other two. We did equity in education with Shannon Griffin and Melva Ware, which was cool. Um, do we know what that funding, is that is that funding... Uh, going to be in place? Uh, what, where, where is that? Yes. So uh, those funding bills were passed and those are going to be uh, in place for uh, the upcoming school year. So we are going to now be seeing statewide, you know, millions of more dollars go into public uh, funding of schools. Um, the thing that we're, you know, then looking at non-legislatively is how to help parents and students and educators advocate for that funding to be spent uh, where it's needed, right? Not just for one administrator to be deciding where all of this money goes, but really listening to the voices of the community about what's needed in their schools. Yeah, and I and I um, would would ask people to go back and check that out um, with Shannon and Melva because they talk about that specifically about community involvement, different uh, to really really dig into it. So if people are interested in that, um, go back to that uh, that one. Maybe we'll uh, link it in the show notes. Third one was voting rights with uh, Claire Snyder Hall and our friend Dwayne Bensing. We love, we love Dwayne. Um, we did get um, automatic voter registration, but all of the sort of uh, no excuse absentee or, or all of the ways that seemed to work well during the pandemic the last time did not get those. Um, I guess we can talk about whether that's going to be a priority going forward or and where that is on the list when we get to priorities, but... Um, you know, what's your general feeling on the on the voting rights issue? Yeah, so we're very excited about automatic voter registration. I mean, that's going to be a major benefit for a lot of voters in the state to ensure not just that you have more people registering to vote, but one of the nice things about automatic voter registration, you know, for all of these folks that are all concerned about uh, security and accuracy of elections, it's actually a voting reform that increases accessibility, but it also makes voter rolls more accurate because when you have somebody who files for like a change of name or a change of address at the DMV because they've moved, you actually get them to update their voter registration automatically. And so it actually leads to much better voter rolls and a lot more accuracy and security. So. We're excited about that, but you know, frankly, the loss uh, this session on House Bill 75 on the no excuse absentee voting uh, was tough. Uh, but we have not lost all hope. Uh, we can talk more about next session, but you know, it's really going to take, um, I think, some deep organizing to, um, frankly, get some Republican support on this. Um, you know, we had 11 Republicans who voted yes on it. Uh, in 2020. Um, we need to get two in 2022 in order to get the second leg passed. Um, and it's it's going to be a heavy lift, uh, especially in this political environment where there's been so much kind of poisoning from the top of the Republican Party uh, around voting and um, the use of vote by mail. Yeah, I mean, we do see the national sort of storyline get filtered through all of the, you know, the websites and Fox News and everything. 
Um, you know, luckily, I don't think anybody can point to. Well, I mean, frankly, there's no real. The, the, all the American elections are almost entirely fraud free. Um, the fraud we do find is like a one off, um, or you know, there was some delays because we did some different kinds of voting this time. But there's no fraud, so it's 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 that's going to be a difficult part to just come out and flatly say uh, that's not, that's not true, and we're going to proceed because that does. That 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 idea infiltrates a lot of people's. Uh, it's like a brain worm. Well, and it's it's interesting. So I, I I've told Dwayne this a few times, talking internally in the office. But I'm old enough to remember uh, back in the mid 2000s, it was actually the Republican Party that started nationally working to pass vote by mail laws because they saw it as a benefit for a lot of Republican voters. Um, that you know older folks who wanted to uh, use vote by mail. Um, uh, veterans, all of those individuals who could uh, benefit from absentee voting. It was the Republican Party that really was behind a lot of the move to expand uh, absentee voting in the uh, late 90s and early 2000s. And so it's really only become recently that, um, you know, we've had some of this national political discourse get people to see it as somehow a partisan political advantage for Democrats when it's frankly a benefit for all voters. Everybody likes to have accessibility and ease of voting. And so this is something that makes it easy for anybody, no matter what party you uh, happen to vote for. Yeah, I will say this, um, the reactionary will not be consistent. So uh, there's gonna be hypocrisy. That's one of the ones we're just gonna have to swallow. I think pointing that out sometimes becomes a big waste of time because that's just not gonna happen. The, the, the reactionary idea is going to be what, what best holds back progress. Uh, or what best expands to enterprise, or you know whatever. So uh, that could be it could be X one day and exactly the opposite Y the next day. That's just that's the nature of it. it it's hard to hold those to uh, reason and logic who refuse to use reason and logic. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's it. Yeah. Um, so going forward, our our priorities, and I just want to talk about one thing, um, sort of generally, because. Uh, after this session, uh, Senator Marie Pinckney, our, our friend and comrade, sent out, a, sent out a tweet about the next half of the legislative session. And I thought, man, is she, is she fixing to try to do something during this special session that's going to be called? Well, after uh, making some phone calls to some people who actually know stuff, uh, apparently the, this session in January is just another half of the session. So it's like a two-year session. That's, I guess, what she meant. I didn't realize that. However, in, in, as part of this... Um, uh, research, I found out that there's no constitutional reason why, if there's a special session gavel in, the things can't be done. Now, I know it's it's pretty rare. Um, actually, I don't remember a special session before. I know I've read about some in the 70s that have dealt with like budget issues and other things. I know this is supposed to deal with the with the the, the census and the redistricting and <clears throat> the drawing you know, drawing the map. But there is absolutely no reason if they're gaveled into session why some of this stuff shouldn't be at least considered or work should be done. I mean, go to work. You know, it, it's the session's the session, and I, I, I think people should talk about this. I don't think anybody's ever going to do it uh, because of uh, precedent, was what I was told. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know whether lobbyists of our ilk like you and your team or, or Carl and his team would, would, would start something like that. And I'll give you an example, and then I'll let you sort of riff on it. You know, this session, one of the things that we got was the, the minimum wage. Now, I'm not happy about the timing of it. 
um, but I'll accept it because it's a good change. And so the minimum wage is going to tear up in four years to $15 an hour. We changed the youth training wage. Uh, we changed the, um, there was one other one. Oh, the, the disability wage, the disability discount wage. We didn't get the most nefarious one, I think, is the tipped wage. That's the, 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 the one when you look at it and you're like, well, that's, that's disgusting. Uh, you know, two twenty-five or two thirty an hour, and that's the part that didn't get. That I think that would be a great thing. To say, look, let's clean this up. It's one thing left. You're in session anyway. Chop chop. Because I saw they did a signing ceremony. They put a video on with everybody there. Gerald Brady was there. Saw him. Uh, we got more to say about that guy. Uh, but yeah, they 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 celebrated this huge change, right? And and okay, fine. Take your day and celebrate it. I was very happy for. Carl and his crew who did a lot of issue campaigning and door knocking and other things. So I'm glad it got passed. But you missed one of the you missed the, the worst one. And and I don't understand why if they gavel in in October to redraw the map, they don't fix that. Yeah. And on, on a personal note, I mean, the tipped wage issue has been one that's bothered me for decades. I, I used to wait tables uh, uh, in college at Bob Evans. And let me tell you. Uh, Bob Evans, you don't get the, that high of tips. And at the time, I was making minimum wage, which was two thirteen an hour. And then, you know, you get a buck or two from somebody who ordered a hash or whatever, and uh, you, you you couldn't live on that. Um, and we're still expecting people to live on that these days. And, you know, you say, well, you know, people can make good money with tips. And it's true. You can in some types of jobs or some types of restaurants. But by and large, especially for folks who are, you know, low income or working class who work at, you know, regular greasy spoons or other types of places where you get tips, you, you don't make near enough to, to carry on a regular life. Um, so it's, it's one that's bothered me for a very long time. Um, but on your point around the legislature uh, opening up, you're right. There, there's nothing to preclude the legislature from coming into session uh, and 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 addressing more than just redistricting. Certainly, the new maps are important, right? I mean, anybody who cares about politics should be watching that. That's highly, highly important and going to impact the next ten years of uh, legislative work here in the state of Delaware. So, super important. But there's a lot that the legislature left on the table that needs to be addressed as soon as possible. You know, we're uh, a year out from many of the protests that happened uh, last summer in the wake of George Floyd's death. And, you know, we had um, uh, elected officials all across Delaware who said, OK, we hear you. We're going to take substantive action on police reform. And I would say the use of force bills and the body worn camera bills, while good, are not substantive enough to address those issues. And that from the beginning of those protests, people had pointed to Leobor needing to be addressed. And until we address Leobor, we are not going to be able to adequately address police reform at all in this state. And so, you know, we, we had this promise of fast movement. And then we had, you know, a year of task force meetings and people talking about it. And then we didn't get it passed by June 30th. And so, you know, that's an emergency. That's something that we need to act on as soon as possible. Um, the other issue that I would say that needs to be worked on uh, that we worked quite a bit on in this legislative session was trying to secure a right to counsel for people who are facing eviction. And again, we're holding our breath because, you know, the eviction moratoriums are supposed to potentially be lifted here soon. And, 
you know, with the pandemic, the economic downfall, this could be a catastrophe for poor and working families here in Delaware. And people need right to counsel now to be able to navigate this system. Um, and if anything uh, deserves uh, the legislature to uh, uh, convene and maybe address some issues, I think those are two that are very worthy for them to work on. Yeah, let's hit Leobor first because I agree with you. You know, if, um, if, if 50 people are on the street in Cuba, you know, then the beautiful boaters from Florida are going to go do another Bay of Pigs. But we put thousands and thousands and thousands of people on the street for a month, for maybe more than a month straight all over the country. And we get body cameras. I, you know, it's weak. It's weak, weak sauce. Well, well, we get body cameras of videos that the public is not even entitled to get because of Leo Bohr, right? Right. And uh, then <laughs> when, when we do get it, we, we're told. I mean, we still haven't. We still haven't gotten the 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 uh, Lamont Moses, uh, you know, answer. But you know, what's it going to be? We're going to be told why that was fine. So we got. We have to get ready. I've been getting ready for months now because we're going to be told that it's fine. So I don't understand. Yeah, I what certainly the video. hope not. But uh, I hope I, not too. And 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 it was. I, I give Matt Meyer a lot of credit for uh, for just using his authority to say that I'm, I'm releasing this. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've had uh, we, we've had uh, Bam McDowell. Uh, we've had uh, Yahim's uh, shooting was uh, was on video from the pizza place. I mean, it, it's not for lack of evidence that these that that, that, that nothing's happening. And again, I listened to I I I, I steeled myself to listen through uh, Carney's state of the state address, and the only thing he said about criminal justice reform at all was body cameras. And so you know, if that's the only thing he's saying, that it's bad. That's not enough. It's woefully inadequate. Um, and again, I can just point to all of the videos that we do have, and nothing happens. So I I'm not I'm not satisfied with yeah. that at all. Yeah, I mean George Floyd's murder was captured on multiple videos, and he was still murdered, right? And so videos by themselves are not going to solve this issue. And um, you know you know we we have had the families of people impacted by police violence. We have had you know scores of community groups calling for this. I, I don't know if you listened to, but you know the Senate Judiciary Committee had testimony on SB 149 when they passed out of committee. And the numbers were uh, 10 to 1 uh, in favor as opposed to uh, SB 149. There were only about three people who opposed it. And it was, you know, a police two police officers and the wife of a police officer. And to me, for the legislature not to act on this issue, it's like, whose voices are you valuing here? Here you have 90% of the community that is aligned on this, that is saying, we want this change. You know, we did a statewide poll at the ACLU where we found 71% of Delawareans support community oversight boards and like 65% support uh, increased transparency. So, so much of the public wants this. Del you know, your average Delawarean actually wants this. It's really just the police lobbyists that are lining up against this. And it's 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 a shame that they have not, you know, moved past that and actually. Yeah, it is a shame. And this is, a, and I, you know, I think it's pretty clear. You know, you can ask the rhetorical question. Maybe I'll answer it. Yeah, it's the cops. Uh, I think the same thing happened with the tenants, bill, the, the, the tenants right to counsel. You know, the, the corporate and the, and the real estate interests here are are huge. And so, you know, you have representatives representing, you know, 70% renters that voted against its right to counsel because, 
Yeah, I mean, the, the, the moneyed interest is the real estate interest. The powerful interest is the police interest. So that's why you get, and, you know, we talked about this with, with uh, uh, minimum wage, but at least we know we got a little bit of joy there. But all of these are extremely popular. 71% with this marijuana legalization, same. Very, widely popular. Doesn't matter, though. Uh, because it, people, the, the, they legislate to a particular, you know, status quo and a particular set of interests. And, you know, you have eight out of 10, you know, almost eight out of 10 Delawareans saying, you know, pot's fine. Uh, tenants should have a right to counsel. We should at least be able to see police records because, you know, they have the monopoly of violence in the street. But, yeah, you don't get it. And what's so unfortunate about both of those cases, too, both right to counsel and Leobor, is that it also, the, the opposition from police unions and landlords also contradicts their own self-interest, in my opinion. Because if I'm a police officer, one of the things that makes my job the hardest thing to do is if I don't have any trust among the community. If you, if you don't have relationships with people, if you don't have any kind of trust and respect among community members, it makes your job incredibly hard to do. And so, you know, accountability and transparency is something you... Uh, you need in order to forge those relationships. And, you know, it's unfortunate because, you know, the community then sees that the police are not willing to uh, uh, open up to uh, say, okay, we have nothing to hide. Here's the information. We want to work with you. We want to have oversight from community members. We want to have their wisdom uh, to help us do a better job. And instead it's just the party of no and putting up walls and, you know, that's not a, a good plan for them to be, I think, successful in the long term. It, it, it undermines, I think, their long-term self-interest. See, I don't know. I, I, um, I think you overrate the idea that they need trust in the communities they're policing. I think what they need to do is sequester particular communities in place and make sure that the people who are the tax base, uh, you know, the rich people down t that want to go to, you know, Bardea downtown, or that own, you know, a couple million dollar home in the Highlands or whatever, or Wawasa Park, like they trust the police and those people have the police trust. I, I think this idea that like, yeah, they would do so much of a better job or it would be an easier job if they were able to do outreach within the communities they police the heaviest. I, I, I'm not sure if that's true, actually. Like, I know that that's things that are said um, as, as a way to try to persuade law enforcement to like, you know, not do what they're clearly doing, which is just, you know, sequestering poor people and black people in particular neighborhoods on particular streets. And if they get out of line, you know, we see what happens. So, I, you know, I, I don't know. I think that I, I think. I think we got to get out of the old arguments and let them and, and, and sort of like that's a That's like. You know, it's a cop argument. We're trying to be nice. We're like, look, this would be so much easier if you just wouldn't be, you know, a, a roided up gorilla out there and people didn't, weren't afraid of you. But actually, it's better if they're afraid of them. It works better for the people who actually are w worried about the cops protecting their shit. So that's what I say. I mean, I, I, I hope that there's some movement on, on, the, on, on the cop bill of rights. I, I really do. I just, you know, I'm a very cynical person, especially when it comes to the the biggest sort of lobbies in the state being cops and big real estate who have an interest in protecting their, you know, the cops protect the real estate stuff. 
And so I think that's it. I, I think what you're seeing is because the, the status quo, the way things are done now, while, you know, while disgusting to some and extremely messy and brutal and, um, and causing all kinds of agony and suffering, you know, all over working class and, and, and lower income communities, I think that, that that's working as designed. Mm -hmm. Well, and, you know, it, 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 it shows how far um, the activists have actually gotten thus far, because, you know, it's not like amending or repealing Leo Bohr is some brand new issue that only came up this year. People have been talking about this since Leo Bohr was passed in the 90s. And, you know, the the police lobby has blocked it at every turn for uh, decades. Um, and, you're, you know, you're right. There were thousands of people out on the street, uh, people calling for it some uh, sustained advocacy campaigns to try and get it passed. Um, you know, we're closer than we've ever been, but we are still light years away. And that doesn't even then take us to, you know, some of the other issues around, um, you know, I, I think the, the conversation around police reform um, over the last year has focused a lot more on how do we, um, uh, uh, decrease the footprint of police uh, around the country. So right now, you know, m the vast majority of the work that police do is not around violent crime. It's around, you know, minor code enforcement, uh, you know, picking up people for uh, unpaid fines and fees or doing traffic violations or, uh, you know, watching lo local bus stops or whatever and doing uh, transportation enforcement. Um, things that are relatively low level that we are then sending out, you know, two armed police officers to respond to. You only have to look at like the dashboard cam and the body cams uh, from the Lyman Moses uh, shooting. I think there were four or five officers that showed up to that uh, uh, incident um, of a guy sleeping in his car. <laughs> yeah, and, and then what do they do? They provoke him. They stick things in the thing, open the door. Yeah, I mean... Again, that it's it's completely unnecessary. I mean, you see, you, you use the uh, the bus stop thing, and and um, you know, we, we we saw this as as part of a uh, protest in in Chile and South America, but we see it in New York City all the time. You know, the turnstile jumper, the guy beating a two dollar fare. Um, do we really need two armed police to jump on that guy's back and and beat him to the ground? I mean, I, I, doesn't seem like doesn't seem so. What what's interesting, I mean, I think this gets to your point uh, that you made earlier, is that, you know, the the criminal justice system or the mass incarceration system overall has essentially become a proxy to deal with to deal with all of the parts of our society that the uh, the, the powerful don't want to deal with, right, or or that they want to control, whether that be uh, people of color whether that be young people, whether that be low-income people, people with disabilities, right? So if you look at um, you know, policing uh, and the way that that's being deployed today, I mean, of course, there's a through line to how we have um, uh, historically um, patrolled and policed uh, communities of color and that, of course, um, you know, the founding of police uh, departments in the United States are directly tied to slave enforcement and uh, and uh, keeping slaves under control. 
Um, but it's also, uh, uh, I think, a direct, the, the way that policing functions today is also a direct connection to the fact that we have um, uh, uh, taken away the funding of all sorts of social service programs. So like today I was meeting uh, earlier today with a mental health advocate and we were talking about um, you know solutions for people when someone is having a uh, mental health crisis and who do they call, right? Um, and today, nine times out of 10, most people are going to call 911 when somebody's having a mental health crisis. And for people who have a mental health crisis, that's actually like the last people that you should call. That oftentimes that puts their lives in danger, their welfare in danger, because police aren't equipped to handle those things. Yeah, but yet we had we had one just so everybody knows if you're not familiar, um, the Delaware State Police uh, blew a lady away in Sussex. And now the and it was it was a mental health problem. I guess they had been out before, um, but yeah, it was straight up mental health. Um, some of the witnesses now are sort of changing their stories, so we don't know a lot about it. But it sounds very sketchy, and it's exactly what you're talking about. So if people don't think that happens here, absolutely it does. It happens all across America, and um, you know, again, it's because. We don't want to deal with people with mental health problems. We don't want to deal with poor folks. We don't want to deal with people of color. And so we come up with the justice system to expand and then to just funnel all of those people because sending them off to prison, uh, arresting them, giving them a criminal uh, violation is a lot easier than actually providing the supports that they need to succeed in the world and and to change some of the power structures that we that we who have power don't actually wish to change because that would mean giving up some of our power. Yeah, that's true. Well, before I, I do want to talk about marijuana a little bit because that's like <laughs> one of my pet, pet projects, but um, but I don't I'm, I'm not I'm actually thinking about moving away from it just because I. I, I'm always thinking about things like that are a waste of like organizing energy or activist energy. And I think for reasons that I've discussed before, maybe we'll get into, I think maybe this is a waste of time considering there are other things that I know are on your agenda that you mentioned already um, that are still on the table. And that's uh, tenants right to counsel and also fines and fees. And also um, we talked not through the ACLU, but about paid family and, and, and medical leave. Um, so we, we still have sort of a draconian fines and fees program, which I think is, again, working as designed to keep people under heel, to keep people, you know, there's there's warrants out. We can pick you up whenever we want. You got to come in and pay your, you know, your 50 bucks every month. Or, or you know, if, if we see you jaywalking, we'll, we'll just we'll just drag you in. Um, so, yeah, it's not that's not appropriate. And and just trying to get some, uh, you know, some leave for people who um, either are taking care of, uh, you know, family members uh, or themselves, um, and, and you know they should be paid for that. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know how you rank those two um, in, in your priorities, and, and also what else before we get to the marijuana issue. What else? <laughs> what else? Uh, what else do you got on your on your, yeah, on your plate? Well, well, so fines and fees also incredibly important, and it's been another. Um, whiplash for me coming from Ohio to Delaware because in my work in Ohio, I actually did a lot of work on fines and fees. Um, we did a big campaign uh, to abolish debtors' prisons, to get rid of pay-to-stay jail fees in Ohio. 
some jails charge you like a per nightly per diem uh, nightly fee. So it's like staying at the Holiday Inn and you get charged 90 bucks a night uh, every night you're in jail. Um, and coming to Delaware, one, the secrecy of the system was surprising, but also the fact that there's really not even just the basic protections that uh, low-income people enjoy in a lot of other states uh, in the court system. So in Delaware, people don't really, the courts don't really assess or even ask the question, are you able to pay this fine or fee before they impose it? They just impose it and they just assume, okay, you can pay it. And I believe fines and fees are another outgrowth of the same thing that we were talking about with policing which is it's another tool to control those who are not in power, right? So it's a tether to the justice system. If I don't have $1,500 in my pocket to pay off my fine and my fee, then I have to continue reporting to court, maybe continue to report to my probation officer. uh, And I have to stay connected to the justice system so that an officer who pulls me over, I might have a warrant, I might, it might come up with a flag that I have a past fine or fee. It gives them an opportunity to search me, search my vehicle, search my home, all of those things that it keeps me uh, uh, at the beck and call of the justice system. And um, it's completely unfair for low-income people. Um, Beyond the control issues, um, a lot of times what you find in these systems is it costs so much more to be poor than it costs to be rich in this country. That if you are a rich person and I get a $1,500 fine, I'll pay off that $1,500 right away. If I'm poor, I've got to pay more because maybe I've got to pay it slower and I get interest or I might have to do an installment plan and there's maybe an extra cost for that or there's a cost associated with me being on probation or having to pay for home monitoring or all kinds of other things. And so low-income folks end up then paying a lot more into the system than what uh, rich folks pay into. And so again, it's it's another tool to keep people down and to keep people under control. Yeah. I wonder, do you know anything? I just started getting information about this. And luckily, you know, we don't have private prison systems. You know, we don't have a private company operating the prison, which, I mean, it doesn't make it that much better. But at least, I guess the opportunity is there for some sort of public responsibility. Like, there's a public person that is responsible for it um, rather than somebody we don't know. Um, so that's, I guess, better. But I I, 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 I understand that a, a private company has just supplied each... Uh, uh, inmate, I don't know what the correct word is, each person that's incarcerated with like a, an iPad now, uh, which is like, on one hand, is is a better communication tool where able, they're able to get, like, talk to their family, a FaceTime, whatever, whatever, which is great. And actually some reporters are using it um, to get through to, to folks and get some information, which I think is super. Um, but th- it's it's one of those private boondoggle things, like a p- private partnership thing. Yep. Are you familiar with this? I am, yeah. yeah and- so can you give me some all, – that's all I know because I was speaking to a, a reporter at, at another outlet who um, does a lot of criminal justice reporting, and he gave me that information. He's like, yeah, I'm really able to, to speak to a lot of people with these things. He's like, it's very, very sketchy. Yeah, and, and it, there's a lot of questions around it. So like we've had to um, – 
assess it at different points because you know we correspond with people who ask for legal assistance but like when we send a letter to uh, a person who's incarcerated in a delaware uh, state prison we you know write on the outside that it's legal mail because you know it we even though that uh, uh, person who's incarcerated has not actually formally retained us for uh, us to represent them. Just them contacting us and us having a dialogue back and forth, that's protected. And that the prison system is not supposed to look at that. That's you know private contact that you have with your attorney. And we've always had a question of like how how protected would those emails be back and forth uh, if you're going on uh, uh, the iPad? Probably not protected Pro- at all. And so there, there's significant questions that we have about that and how safe it would be for us as an advocacy organization to use that. But beyond that, then there is a cost, right? Uh, so oftentimes um, there's a cost per email that the person sends. There are additional costs if you want to do pictures or have other things that might be, you know, high memory uh, when you send an email or or an item through uh, through um, uh, one of the systems is called uh, JPay. Um, uh, but there are a couple different email and uh, other types of vendors out there, but. I, you brought up something because I've also fought against private prisons a lot in my past. We have several of them in Ohio. And private prisons are bad. And there's absolutely a perverse incentive for private companies. But I also would say there is a prison industrial complex for public prisons too, right? right. That the incarcerating people is also money makers for people in government, right? It's, you know, the more people that we incarcerate in Delaware state prisons, uh, you can uh, employ more corrections officers, or you can build more prisons, or you can, uh, for the fines and fees uh, scenario, a lot of those fines and fees go back to the courts, right? Uh, and so, again, there's these incentives of keeping people in the system because we don't adequately fund some of the things like courts uh, or because we have interests that are wanting to keep um, these sort of money-making uh, things going that are part of our bureaucracy. Yeah, it's it's. Um, I, I hope people start looking into this. Um, I was just really, it, it struck me, and I'm, it's stuff I always think about, so I wasn't surprised that it struck me, but at the beginning of COVID when, um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the incarcerated folks were just like in very, very dangerous situations in close contact with people, no uh, availability for like masks or anything, just, you know, guards in and out. And and nobody, I, I brought it up to a couple elected officials and just got completely laughed off. Um, I did, I have, I have a, um, you know, I have a bee in my bonnet about Claire DeMattis anyway, but um, I did go down to uh, Georgetown and did a, a did an action there with a bunch of comrades on this kind of stuff because, yeah, I mean, that's the last stop. I mean, we talk about fines and fees. We talk about how to police police certain areas and all of that. But the last stop is they get you and they just put you in, you know, put you in a closet and treat you like a, like a subhuman person uh, or not a person. And um, and the incentive is to keep people going through it, whether it's like food services, giving them iPads. Um, just, just having that as a, having that as a, uh, one of the things in the status quo infrastructure, uh, is, is, is power for some people. Well, and I, and I would counter, it's not necessarily the last stop because, you know, 99% of people who are in Delaware prisons 
are going to come out. But that's again where the system comes in because those folks then are released and they're on probation and then they've got to report to probation and they've got to keep reporting to probation. And there's a thing in Delaware called, it's the level one probation, it's restitution only probation, that if you still owe fines and fees at the end of your probation, you're on that lowest level of probation until you can actually pay off all your fines and fees. And so the system keeps you tethered and it plays into what we're looking at with policing because here in the state of Delaware, we have uh, the Operation Safe Streets program, which is a partnership between local police and probation officers. When I learned about this moving here, I was like shocked. They, they partner with probation officers and when you're on probation, you don't have uh, necessarily the same Fourth Amendment rights that a regular person does. And so police officers here in the city of Wilmington and other cities across Delaware, go with probation officers and knock on people's doors who uh, are on probation. They say, we're going to search your place right now um, and go with police officers and search that person, search the people that are in the house with them. Um, and it becomes, again, another way to surveil, monitor, control, and keep them tethered to the justice system. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I used to, uh, you know, saying it's a last stop. Not, it isn't. Um, it also, uh, we had, I had a conversation with a guy who was a, a social worker and a psychologist uh, in Western Massachusetts and wrote a, a great essay in Current Affairs about six months ago, maybe nine months ago, about homelessness and dealing with different different sets of, of like sort of categories of homelessness. And how, And this was a big one. It's like, yeah, you have a right now you can't live somewhere. Or if you're living with the, your this person, you could be kicked out of public housing. You can't live in a private place because this person has a gun or you can't live like yeah, I mean, it cre it actually drives uh, homelessness quite a bit. All of the different um, sort of uh, criteria and, and, and things you need to do and obligations that you have to just con just make sure they can control actually drives homelessness way up. I will say one of the uh, successes we had that I didn't mention uh, specifically earlier that I'm most proud of of this legislative session is we did pass the uh, Clean Slate Initiative bills. And, you know, if you're looking at a way to hopefully help to sever that tie to the justice system, uh, expungement and making expungement automatic, I think, is one way to do that. Because again, the, the other way that the justice system keeps you tethered is even if you get past probation, even if you pay off your fines and your fees, every time an employer or a landlord or anyone else does a check on you, they're going to find that past conviction or even that past arrest. And like here in the state of Delaware, you know, we did a we did uh, research and we found 290,000 Delawareans will benefit from this clean slate bill, where they either have a past conviction or a past arrest that could be expunged because of this automatic pro uh, process. And if you think about a state with less than a million people, and 290,000 have some sort of record like that, um, that's that's going to be, I, I hope one major blow to this but it's it's not enough there's always still no and i'm glad that passed i mean uh you know we, we you you guys hired our our friend hanif uh on this just recently and and this just gets passed i mean is that a coincidence <laughs> does does hanif we, deserve we a raise we, probably we, we, ha I we mean, have a we have a very great team successful <laughs> very successful shout out hanif um which i'm glad we I'm glad you brought that up or we would have forgotten it that's excellent um, yeah, so last bit of priority until we maybe talk about some other topics um, is, is the marijuana thing. And, and my um, position is starting to become like, and, and some of it is a privileged part, and I have to sort of check that, that, that issue because like 
I understand that part of it, but even even people who don't have my privilege, everybody who kind of wants to smoke is smoking. Um, nobody's like waiting, like oh, I'm I'm, I'm going to get high as soon as it's legal. Like no one's doing that, and so you know the unfortunately the people who don't have the privilege have to deal with like like Lyman Moses had to deal with about like is there partner it smells like partner like has to deal with that bullshit and then be executed on the street. Um, that's not great, obviously. But but in the broader sense, um, I think that the status quo is just workable for enough people. Even though, as you said before, this is another one that's wildly popular across the state. So, um, yeah, I mean, where does it fall on your priority list? How do you feel about it? And this is also another one of those that, hey, we've been working on this like Leobor for a decade or more. And so, um, yeah, what's your what's your thoughts on it? So a couple things. I mean, I I agree with you that I think a a lot of folks who want to uh, use marijuana know ways to get it, right? Um, I kind of see it as a little bit similar to um, even like some of the discussions around uh, abortion access now, right? Because people are very worried about, you know, Roe falling at at the Supreme Court. And it's like even when abortion was illegal, Lots of people still got abortions, right? And the people who were able to get it safely were women who had means, right? And so, you know, with any kind of social justice issue, it's always those who are um, who don't have power who are going to feel the brunt of it. And the brunt here, because if if you go and talk to people within like the Delaware correction system, um, they'll tell you, well, we don't have anybody in state prison who's there just for marijuana uh, issues. And so marijuana is not a driver of incarceration. What it, but, it, but it is, because the way that it's a driver is that it is used as a pretext to get to people of color and low-income people uh, for police to be able to search them and to be able to um, arrest them. And so that that is really, to me, the the civil rights issue and why marijuana needs to be legalized. I mean, beyond, you know, my feeling is uh, around any kind of drugs is it's your body <laughs> and just what you want. Right. Um, it's you know, I have a very libertarian philosophy around that. Um, but from a social justice point of view, um, you know, allowing marijuana to continue to remain uh, criminal uh, again, allows for all sorts of people to be surveilled and uh, funneled into the justice system. And that that's the real problem. I would say the other thing that I think people have gotten much better about thinking, because when I first started working around marijuana, uh, medical marijuana and, mar- med- and marijuana decriminalization, you know, a decade ago, um, people weren't really talking about how to structure legalization in an equitable way um, that uh, just like any other capitalistic uh, enterprise, um, marijuana business was then um, created in a way that would only that would really benefit rich white folks. Was it Ohio? And I tell this story, and you had to check me on this, where it went up on the ballot, but the activist actually lobbied to vote no because it, it only had like these three corporations were going to run the show and it got voted down maybe 10 years ago. In That's right. Uh, le- less than 10 years ago. But yeah, it, it was a hugely funded campaign. They had a little campaign uh, mascot buddy uh, that they dressed up and did a little tour all throughout Ohio. And yeah, it, they set it up as a monopoly and um, it would have been you know terrible for any 
a person of color who actually wanted to benefit from uh, the medical marijuana industry to make money off of it. And again, I think that that is looking at how can we be more equitable and justice minded. Justice isn't just you know, pulling out the thorn that's been in your paw, but it's actually fixing it and then, uh, you know, making the person fully whole. And we have had a thorn in the paw of, you know, black people for centuries around drugs. And uh, if we're passing bills that don't fully um, uh, 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 think about and contemplate how to make sure that the communities that have been most impacted by those negative drug laws can actually benefit from its legalization. And I think we're overall falling short. Yeah, I, I didn't. Um, I was told after the fact that one of the reasons that you know the reason that it didn't pass was because of that provision, the, the, the social equity provision. Um, so hopefully that's that's something that we can get past and just kind of get past this because it's spinning our wheels here. Uh, I will say that the Maryland law uh, does have it included. And I found that out um, over the weekend because guy I was talking to, he was like, hey, I'm going to roll one. I'm like, I, I love everything you're saying right now. He's like, I'll just roll a big. I'm like, great. He brought out this really nice uh, you know, uh, retail uh, weed. And I was like, where'd you get that? He's like, dude, I run the store, man. It was a black guy. He was like, no, I got first in line. Black guy, I'm using that. I was like, dude, that's great. But he got his license and his business via the, the social equity and the, and the economic equity uh, provisions of the Maryland law which I thought was fantastic. And also, the weed, also fantastic. So <laughs> so see, win-win. <laughs> it was a win-win. <laughs> so yeah, I, I actually, uh, although, you know, it was another thing that we go another, you know, another session without, you know, passing it, I'm, I'm okay with, with people sticking to their guns and saying, you know, this is something that, that we should do, uh, you know, sort of like the Ohio vote went uh, when they put up on a referendum. Like, look, if we're not going to, if we're, if we're just going to use it for capital monopoly, you know what? Fuck it. Well, I don't want to do it. I, I, th I think it's it's a good actual fundamental question for Delawareans, not not just around marijuana, but in general. I mean, as a, as a new Delawarean, I have, you know, been educated and learned a lot about kind of the Delaware way, which is, you know, go behind closed doors, work out all of your differences behind closed doors, and then come out with some sort of compromise. And... You know, that Delaware way, that compromise has tended not to benefit a whole lot of the people who are actually directly impacted by whatever issue it is, right? And so, you know, I think there are a lot of good reasons why, you know, compromise can sometimes be an okay thing, but there's also a lot of reasons why it isn't. And that sometimes there are issues that are so important that taking a compromise actually hurts that community and hurts the overall movement. And so I think that that's a real legitimate question as we continue to work on things is, you know, do you take that scrap of bread or do you really fight to get the full loaf that has been, you know, uh, out of people's reach for so long? Well, folks, we've presented to you another banger of an episode. Just remember that these are brought to you by not only the Highlands Bunker podcast, but the Delaware Call and the ACLU of Delaware follow all of that work we always linked up to it uh we also released last week a bonus episode where ty greer and i uh we did talk about critical race theory in the 1619 project we did talk about guns we did talk about religion we talked about a bunch of like controversial stuff but uh it's for patrons only so if it's something that you uh, are into for as low as two dollars a month 
you could access it at patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. Now we might even do another bonus episode. You gonna stay? You gonna stick around? And, yeah, and, and, sure. I'll stick around. This? No All right. Well, we're, we're going to do a little. We're going to do something quick for for uh, for our great patrons out there. Uh, but for now, for the rest of you, beautiful, beautiful friends and comrades who freeload on this great show, left is best. <laughs>